Welcome to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 12. This is an email bag episode. And honestly, there's been some interesting industry news, some awful industry news, and some pretty good feedback from previous episodes. So let's jump into it. First, I do want to say thanks to my new patrons over at Patreon, Mike, Gordon, Wes, wow, Wes, big donation from Wes, and wow, Donovan, another big donation from Donovan. Uh, Thank you also to Eric, David, Terry, and another Eric. Thank you so much, guys. We are getting so close to the first milestone goal of launching this YouTube channel. I'm pretty excited. I've got some stuff already planned out for that. So again, thank you so much for supporting the show. If you don't support the show yet, that's okay. I still like you. But if you really want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update and you'll find everything you need to know there. So industry news. <laughs> I've gotten several... Uh, uh, questions via the form submitted. I've had people on Instagram contact me. I've had people, you know, in my day-to-day life at the lumberyard call me and want to know what's going on with the forest fires in the Amazon right now. And what's kind of alarming is just how little information is actually out there, how there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and of, of acres, more than that, <laughs> thousands and thousands of acres of, of forest on fire in such a hotbed environmental area. And it's not really making all that much news. You see a kind of a fluff piece here and there on it. And God forbid you actually Google Amazon fire. You'll end up with you know, articles on the fire stick and streaming services and things like that. And very little information on the actual rainforest fires. Well, certainly there's there's other issues to bear there with uh, Amazon.com. But the other issue is there is not a lot of information on the rainforest fires. First of all, rainforest fires are very, very difficult to uh, control. I mean, all forest fires are difficult to control when they get big enough. But Brazil and, and, and the, the countries that was mostly Brazil we're talking about here, they don't really have the same firefighting services that we have. Um, and the forest is so dense that you really can't get in there. So really what they've been trying to do is, is um, air bombard the fires and kind of shut them down that way. But the problem is the canopy is just so dense that a lot of those drops really don't get all the way to the ground. And they may douse some of the area in the canopy, but there still can be some smoldering going on below. It's very, very difficult to fight a fire in the rainforest. Also, when you think about so much of that wood is so hard and so dense that in many instances, they actually have the lumber itself has fire ratings. It's resistance to fire. So it can be very, very difficult to fight this. But the biggest issue is access. You know, there's been so much uh, in environmental attempts in protecting the rainforest and making sure that good silvicultural practices are followed, good harvestry practices are followed, that the amount of, of logging roads that we used to see have really gone away. And many of those logging roads have actually been reclaimed by the forest. So getting into the forest to fight the fires can be very, very difficult to do. So they're still raging and we're still trying to find out some more information. Uh, I spoke actually with uh, one of our uh, brokers in Brazil and he's trying to gather me some more information. So uh, this is kind of a placeholder at this point. Stay tuned, folks. I'm kind of paying attention to this closely. I'm talking to some folks down in the forest, people that we work with day in and day out who uh, own concessions that we buy from regularly. 
and I, I plan to continue to update this as we have more information. Right now, it's it's too early. There's not enough information flowing out to really speak with any authority on things. I can say that one of, well, no, that's not true. Like one and a half of the concessions owners that I talked to have said that, yes, it is affecting their concessions, but like way, way, way in the back of their concessions, like the back nine of their concessions. You might have remembered me talking about this either on this show or when this was still a segment on Wood Talk, that in order to have a lumber concession in Brazil, IBAMA, which is the forest uh, forestry ministry down there, requires you to submit a 40-year silvicultural plan just to apply for a concession. If you're granted it, you're granted it on that 40-year concession plan. And a lot of that includes don't touch this material. These hectares can't be touched until year 20, until year 25, 30, etc. And there are specific uh, uh, grid squares that are laid out to be forested in years one through 40 and specific plans of action to be done in all those grid squares in years one through 40. So for instance, the the, the grid that you're, you're harvesting in year one has follow-up plans in year two, three, four, in order to foster continued growth after trees have been felled there. So it's kind of an ongoing thing. The idea being at the end of that 40-year plan, the only grid squares that would have been affected that would show any signs of logging would probably be the last 10 years worth. And the first 30 years worth, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even know that there'd been any logging there. That's the idea. Does it always work that way? Sometimes it does. Uh, it, there's a lot more science there that, that I can't begin to understand. But the point of this being... A lot of the fires and the, the concession owners I talk to are not affecting their anything inside the 20-year mark. And these are relatively new concessions. One of them was actually just renewed, and he's on year one right now. And he's got a fire in his 25-year area, um, and I, I want to say upper 30s or something like that. So while that doesn't affect supply right now, think about it. That could seriously affect supply 20 years down the road. And the minute that happens, it throws a monkey wrench into the entire concession plan. So forgive the the cliche here, where there's smoke, there's fire. If this is happening to one concession owner, and I say one and a half because I talked to the assistant of another one, and they said, yeah, it's kind of the same story here. You know it's happening to, to other concession owners. And this is what I'm trying to find out. More, Most importantly, how are you being affected? What's the status now? Is it being controlled? And moreover, how will this change your concession plan? How are you going to pivot and, and deal with this? Forest fires are a natural thing. In many ways, a lot of people, silviculturists will tell you they're a very healthy thing. But man, when you look at these satellite images of so much forest on fire, it's really hard to come up with a positive spin on this. So stay tuned, folks. I will be giving us more information. Ideally, I would love to get one of my Brazilian agents actually on the phone. I just don't think that's going to happen. Moreover, his uh, Portuguese accent is so thick. I just don't know how well that would translate. Anyway, um, stay tuned. I, I really am following this closely. <laughs> wow, I just realized I was going to jump over into uh, Tales from the Yard and talk about uh, some new experiments we're, experiments we're doing. And it occurs to me, uh, wow, this was not planned, but it might be in poor taste. We're just talking about rainforest fires, and I'm going to talk about Shishugi Bomb. <laughs> If you don't know, that's when you burn the wood in order to create an exterior grade uh, finish. 
yeah, maybe that's in poor taste. Well, I'm going to do it anyway, because that's what I had planned. Uh, Shushugiban, uh, Japanese in origin, actually it might be, no, it's Japanese in origin. Although um, Scandinavian countries, the Vikings were using Shushugiban techniques. I don't know what the Vikings called it. If anybody knows what the Vikings called that, let me know. I'd like to know. I haven't looked it up or Googled it or anything. It may just be as simple as a Google search. But it's the taking a board and torching it and then coming back and using like a stiff bristle brush to remove the charcoal from the less dense the early growth wood the the more dense late growth wood doesn't burn doesn't char as fast so what happens is you remove that um, early growth stuff and you get this really cool three-dimensional almost topographic map looking effect which visually is very very cool but it also closes up all those pores and in, almost like you burnish the wood and it makes it a great exterior wood you apply an oil to it and it kind of deepens that even more so you see a lot of um exterior buildings you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old that have this very black exterior that almost looked like they were in a fire. And they were, because that's what they did to actually treat the exterior siding of the logs and things of these homes to prevent, to, to make them water resistant. Well, this has become all the rage. Everybody wants Shishigiban siding on their house. We've been providing Shishigiban siding to houses in the Hamptons, houses in California for, well, before I even came to work at McIlvain. So it's been more than 10 years. But lately, they've been the, the there have been many companies who come out who do nothing but this. You know, they call it charred wood. Shishugiban is kind of the the insider's term, if you will. It's becoming a little bit more in vogue. But you know, Google search volume for Shishugiban is much much lower than charred, finished, burnt wood, things like that. So these companies are now providing this not only as siding, some people are doing as flooring. All kinds of different products are being used. Furniture is being made out of it as well, and it's become really popular to the point where we've started to look at, should we actually offer this? And really what it is, it's not a mill process, it's a finishing process. And we do offer finishing at the yard, so it was kind of a natural extinction. So we've been trying to, extinction? Did I say extinction? Wow, I'm full of puns, uh, faux pas puns today. A natural extension of our finishing process would be to offer a Shishugi Bond finish. And I've been kind of having a lot of fun with my yard manager experimenting with different species. We've been using a lot of softwoods, a lot of variegated grain softwoods like Douglas fir, where they will burn differently from the early to late growth. Been using a koya a lot. You get this kind of gator effect, as it's called, um, where it looks like the scales of an alligator. Very, very cool. It seems to do it best on a koya. Uh, it must have something to do with the chemical treatment process. Certainly the very, very dense, close grain of a koya does, um, has something to do with it as well. It doesn't have, it has more of a homogenized grain rather than in contrast to something like southern yellow pine or douglas fir with the extreme differences in density from early to late growth but it's been really interesting how much torching is required how much wetting of the wood is required in order to keep it from warping like crazy because what happens if you blow torch one side and not the other side the thing turns into a potato chip but you don't want to torch both sides necessarily because if you're creating a lot of charcoal, you could be you know, causing actual structural instability. Not that siding needs a lot of structural stability. So we've been playing a lot with how to, not only how to do this, but how we can scale it up, how we can turn it into a production line. And uh, we're actually hoping to take a visit to one of the companies that specializes in it and talk a little bit more about how it can be turned into a much larger scale. It's kind of interesting. And I've certainly been learning a lot about the process and learning about the history of it. And it's definitely something that uh, myself as a woodworker would love to kind of play with it 
in my own projects. So yeah, I'm going to have to first of all, get a blowtorch. And second of all, make sure my wife is out of town because she's not going to want anything to do with me standing there blowtorching stuff in the driveway. Anyway, it's just something that that's new. Uh, I'd be curious if anybody listening to this has experience with Shishugi Bond, if you've done it yourself, if you've bought it for use on your home, or if you have any links to companies that produce this commercially, I'd love to hear them because I'd love to reach out to them and talk to them about it. So there we go. Going to move on to some feedback. I actually got, um, you know, this was actually an email sent in anonymously, and I've since gotten this sent through social media channels a couple of times. But it's it's a news story coming out of South Africa where there is a company using nanotechnology to fight the beetles that are causing problems down there in South Africa. Um, we have the, you know, the emerald ash borer, the powder pose beetle, the the beetle. What's the beetle called? behind thousand canker, I don't remember, but thousand canker disease, both a fungus and a, and a bug. There is a beetle down there called the uh, polyphagus shot hole borer that is just decimating trees in and around Johannesburg. And it's it's really, really scary, the amount of spread and like the percentages of trees affected down there. Well, this company has developed using nanotechnology a, um, a carrier that is about... Uh, 10 nanometers across. So um, to give you perspective, the smallest living cell is about 10 microns. So this carrier is a thousand times smaller than that, which means it can pretty much penetrate through most known barriers. It can go right through cell walls. And what they've been doing is actually injecting this, um, they call it a vesicle, into the trees. And what it does is kills the fungus that the beetles feed on. It takes away their food source and the beetles then leave the tree. And apparently they've had enough success with it in the labs that it's now been released into the wild. Department of Agriculture has said, go for it. See what happens. So here's an example of, of clinical trials actually moving into the field. My first question, and there's just not enough information in the news story, but my first question is, the beetles are going to go looking for a food source, right? You've taken away their food. That's why they've left the tree. So I suppose they'll just starve and die. But what if there's another food source? It seems that this beetle is, a, is affecting a lot of different species. So it's not like, you know, the powder post beetle where we drive it out of the white oaks and the red oaks and maybe it goes and finds something else because there's nothing else to eat. That would be my concern is that it's going to go find something else to eat and they're going to drive this blight from one species to another. I would assume that these people are a lot smarter than I am and probably have thought of this already. But the story here, the real key is that here is a technological solution that is actually being shown to work and it's killing these tiny little beetles off. Well, I should say it's killing the fungus off, which is causing the beetles to starve. I would also assume that that fungus is not necessary to support the life of the tree. Um, very much like the thousand canker disease, it's brought on by the beetles themselves. So, you know, again, this is a, more of a, a puff piece from a local news station in Johannesburg. So it's not heavy on scientific details, but it's it's just cool. It's a, it's a technological solution that could have applications across the globe. And I'm sure there's a lot of people looking into it. So finally, some good news about the little beasties eating our trees. Very excited to, to see that. So uh, thank you to everybody who sent me the link on that. Bob sent me uh, a story, and I feel like I might have talked about this on Wood Talk months and months and months ago when this was still a segment over there, when that show still existed, um, about the fact that China is essentially the headline of the story is China is turning the rainforest into cheap furniture for the U.S. And the, the abstract, the gist of this is Americans love cheap furniture. 
maybe because we don't know any better. And we're buying the stuff left and right. And where's it all made? It's all made in China. Well, where's the lumber coming from that this stuff is made of? If you've ever looked at Chinese furniture and you know anything about wood species, it's very difficult to put your finger on exactly what that species of wood is. It's oftentimes secondary tertiary species that don't, you know, don't end up on the lumber racks all that much. Um, and they're, they're, uh, um, little pieces glued together into larger panels and things like that made from these, these less than desirable species. But what we're finding is China is logging like crazy and their furniture factories are right next door to the um, log yards. And I talked about this a while ago when we were in the Notre Dame episode about how um, the Siberian larch and the French oak out there is being harvested by the Chinese and turned into things. This is very real. Um, you can look at satellite images of some of the lumber towns along the Russian border and see factories next to them that are producing furniture. And there's a, a railroad car that goes in filled with logs and comes out the other side filled with furniture. And it's essentially a way of laundering that material. It's what I talked about in the CITES episode where uh, we were meeting percentage of transformation of product by turning a log into a table. And it's perfectly legit, perfectly legal, because we've got the documentation to show that the log source was legal. But what if you don't have that documentation on the source of log? And what if you kind of lose track of what log was used to make that furniture? Now you've laundered that illegal log into a bit of furniture. Moreover, are people actually checking the furniture as it comes into the port? Not so much. Now, the CITES and the U.S. Lacey response to this is starting to recognize that this laundering is happening. We've seen it first in the musical um, instrument trade where CITES passports have to be issued. So you're a you know, first chair violinist in a, in a famous orchestra traveling the globe. You have to have a passport for your violin because of the rosewood and things in that violin. And you have to get that passport removed or that violin's going to be seized at the border. We're seeing this happen with guitars. The luthiers have been dealing with this for, gosh five, six years now, um, probably longer than that. The passport thing is relatively new. And even that is actually experienced a change very, very recently where the, the rules have been lessened a little bit. It's not quite so difficult on the instrument owner to get these passports, which was becoming a bit, uh, bit difficult for these folks to cross borders, especially if you are a symphonic uh, performer who is crossing international borders a fair amount. The same is starting to happen with the furniture, but the fact of the matter is the furniture trade is so large and so diverse in its product line that it's really hard to police this. So, you know, we as woodworkers will say, don't buy cheap Chinese crap, support a local craftsman. Well, there's more reasons for that because we don't know where the wood that the Chinese crap furniture is coming from. And in many instances, while it may be secondary tertiary species and it may not be threatened, it's probably coming not from a concession, but maybe illegally. And we can turn a blind eye to that and say, well, it's not a threatened species, but how long until that species becomes threatened because of the volume of material being taken willy-nilly to make furniture. So it's something to think about. And I do want to thank Bob for uh, shining a light on this again. Whether I talked about it before or not, it needs to be brought up again. That brings me to emails. Time to talk about some emails. I've got a lot of them and I'm trying to work my way through. In fact, um, next episode, I may just do another email episode because I've got a lot of them backing up on me when I keep doing these single topic episodes. They just stack up on me. So I wanted to answer this question from Brad. He said... 
where in the supply chain is the grading done? Um, and is it done by a computer image system or a human? The answer is yes. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, as far as whether it's a human or a, a computer system, it's a little bit of both, and it depends upon the lumber being graded. Many of the softwood mills, the construction lumber mills, a lot of that is done by an imaging system. Now, there's a human involved in the system that's kind of doing some checks and balances on it, but for the most part, it's being done by an imager. In the hardwood trade, there's a few more subtleties there, and a lot of times it's it's a little bit of both. So, for example, at the yard where I work, we have a system called Vision Tally, which is two cameras on either end. So imagine taking a stack of lumber, running it down these conveyor chains, and there's cameras on either end shooting into the ingrain of the boards. And they are not only taking a picture of the in cross-section of the board, so you can see um, the, the thickness and the width of that board. The other camera is taking a, a cross-section and the two of them together tell you the length of each individual board. But moreover, they're using radio waves, kind of uh, like sonar, into the boards and testing density and it will start to pick up knots and wane as well to a limited degree. So what we're getting right off the bat is um, certainly volume. We're getting an idea of the number of pieces in a pack and the individual sizes of each one of those pieces. And we're getting kind of little red flags saying this piece has wane, this piece has knots. So it's doing kind of uh, an initial grade. That's as far as we go with computers at our yard. There are additional imaging systems that can then take that information and look at each individual board from above and below and from the ends and and map out those individual defects according to a set of rules, grading rules. We have found, however, and I've talked about this before when it comes to grades, how the general demand in the industry is way above what FAS dictates. You know, NHLA lumber grades go back to when furniture was a big deal and you could make cutting grades around what the furniture industry needed. You know, four foot long pieces, six foot long pieces. Well, the millwork trade needs longer pieces than that. So just saying FAS is not nearly enough. Most of our customers demand well above grade. And that's where things like superior and 100% clear and all heart come from. So we have an actual human that runs does grading. And we have actually several graders that have specializations in certain species, you know, the mahogany grader and a walnut grader. Um, and they, you know, because there's so many little rules to think about, you need somebody to specialize on that. So once we've done the initial vision tally and we know kind of any shrinkages that occurred in the shipment, we then take that and the, um, Lumber is then dried. Uh, depending on what it is, some of the lumber we do buy is already kiln dried. But for the most part, we're doing some air drying and we're doing some kiln drying. You got to dry it first because you can grade it and then defects are going to occur in the kiln. There is going to be some wastage that comes out of a kiln. There's going to be some checking that comes out of a kiln. There could be sticker stain that comes out of a kiln. It's rare to get a perfect kiln dry where every single board that comes out is completely unaffected by the kiln. It's very difficult to do that. So you do expect there to be some wastage. So immediately you need to get that out of the way before you do a formal grade. So the supply chain is thus. The lumber comes in to the the clearing yard, in our case, the distribution yard. And it is if it's green, air dried or kiln dried, it's immediately marked for it needs to go down that path. It needs if it's green, it needs to air dry for a while um, and then it needs to be kiln dried. If it's air dried, it generally needs to be air dried a little bit longer and then goes into the kiln. 
all of our all of our lumber goes through that vision tally first, more of a, a way of checking like your invoice, make sure you got everything that you asked for. You know, were all the pieces shipped that we paid for? Because if they weren't, then hey, we have a claim and we need some money back. Um, so once that drying is done, then it comes out and it goes across the grading chains, and this is essentially. The lumber comes in stacked in a pack and it gets lifted up on kind of a forklift deal and tilted on an angle that it's so that the boards slide off kind of one row at a time down this angled chain. And it essentially takes a pack and spreads it out into one even layer. So as it runs in front of the grader, he can then take a look at one face, mark any grade marks on it, flip it over, look at the other face, and then it goes on down the chain. Um, our grading chain has a double-ended circular saw on the other end. So oftentimes we have, um, you know, any checking that occurs in the kiln, we're just lopping the, the foot off either end in order to get rid of that. The ends are then sealed again, and they go back out on the lumber yard ready to be sold at that point. But the grading can happen further downstream as well. We will grade when the material comes in, um, excuse me, after it's been dried. We will grade periodically when lumber's been sitting out in the shed for a while and has kind of a low turn rate. We will grade before when the lumber has been pulled for sale. And at that point, we're now grading to a customer spec. The customer has requested this species, this grade, this width, this length, et cetera, et cetera. And we're grading and we're, we're essentially cherry picking to that grade, to that dimensional spec. That's also where those saws at the end of the chain can be used in order to trim to a very set length. So the grading happens many ways along the, along the chain. Sometimes three, four times a board is graded before it actually is put on a truck and sent to a customer. When you're talking about that type of grading, it really has to be done by human because there's just too many variables in play and those variables are too dynamic. You know, they, they change from one customer to another. And I suppose you could program all that stuff in and have a computer look at it, but we frankly would not feel good sending that stuff out. And a lot of my um, colleagues and other companies who do deal in hardwoods are gonna to wanna to do that as well. It works fine for the construction dimensional lumber trade where it's not really about appearance and more about structure. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Plus they deal on a much, 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 much higher volume than the hardwood guys ever would. So there you go, Brad. Long answer to a relatively simple question. Greg wrote in and it's funny. He sent me an email that said, Baltic birch, question mark. In the, in the subject line. And essentially, it boiled down to, tell me about the quality and what is it? What is Baltic birch? This is a loaded question. You know, you may, some of you may be thinking, what do you mean, what is it? It's plywood. Well, Baltic birch, yes, it is plywood. It started as a brand name and it's kind of become ubiquitous for a product now, kind of like how Band-Aid is synonymous with, you know, adhesive bandages. Band-Aid is actually a brand name. Baltic birch was a brand name Really, it's shop-grade plywood. Um, is it always birch? Not always. <laughs> it's it's a you know light-colored plywood, and what it is depends on who you're buying it from and what price point you're paying for it. Now, I'm talking specifically about shop-grade plywood here, but these lessons can be taken to the wider plywood market in general. Um, I've got a blog post on McIlvain about this where plywood is really all about what you pay. You get what you pay for. Because it is a, an engineered product, every little step in the manufacturer um, 
process costs money. You know, the amount of glue you use is cost money. How fast it takes the roll of glue on costs money. The number of plies you use costs money. How long those plies were dried, how well those plies were dried, all those things cost money. So if you want to produce a cheaper panel, you literally cut corners. Well, not literally. You know what I mean? Although you could cut corners, I suppose, and stitch the veneers together on the corner on the bias. No. The somewhere there's a step that's skipped in order to cut the cost. And that is, you know, a lot of times it's the quality of the face veneers. A lot of times it's how well those veneers have been dried, the quality of the log that those veneers came from, and the quality of the glue and how much glue is applied. How much heat and and force was applied during the pressing process and how long did it sit in the press. All of those things that can speed up the production process and cut the overhead will reduce the overall cost of that panel. Doesn't necessarily mean that that panel is crap. Sometimes it does. Some of the cheap stuff you'll find at you know, your average big box store is pretty crappy because of all those corners that have been cut. Other times you're gonna find a perfectly good middle of the road panel that is gonna run you 60 bucks and it's still pretty legit. But then you can hold it up against a $180 panel and go, holy crap, you know, I've died and gone to heaven. This is amazing. Amazingly stable, amazingly flat, you know, 300 plies in a three quarter inch. Well, not 300, but you get what I mean. You've ever, you've seen those oftentimes called architectural ply or Euro ply where there's like 24 plies in a three quarter inch piece, just incredibly dimensionally stable, zero voids, perfectly dead flat, like NASA flat. It's incredible stuff. Well, you can buy Baltic birch that looks like that, that looks like that Euro ply. And it's all called Baltic birch, or in some instances, it's called shop plywood. So if you're going to a yard and you're saying, hey, do I have Baltic birch and look like they look at you like you have three heads, try saying, do you have shop plywood? Usually they're going to say, okay, now we know what you're talking about. Then you need to figure out exactly what it is you're getting. They're going to give you a price for that panel and they ought to be able to give you a grade as well. You know, it's a BC grade or a B2 grade or a C4 grade. And maybe we'll get into plywood grading later, but you need to kind of dig in and find out what you're looking at. But the easiest thing is, is okay, what's the cost per, per sheet? And think about good quality plywood you used in the past and how does that price compare. Is it significantly less? Then there's an issue. It's probably not going to be that um, best quality. Honestly, the good quality, and I'm going to use the brand name again, but the good quality Baltic birch is actually Finnish in origin from Finland. It's not really birch anymore either. Um, And it's the best stuff that's out there now. So if you're looking for shop grade plywood, just ask a bunch of questions, but really hone in on the price point. And if they give you, you know, a, a panel that's $35 and you can say, well, do you have anything that's more expensive? I know that's crazy. You're actually asking the dealer, do you have something that's more expensive than that? And they may say, no, we, all we've ever gotten is stuff that's $35. You know, okay, well, you know, that's at least a starting point. Maybe worth buying a sheet, see how it works. And if it's absolute crap, you know that you need to exceed that $35 price point. I can pretty much tell you, you need to exceed the $35 price point. If you're talking about three quarter inch shop grade plywood, you're probably going to be at least in the 50 to 55 range if you're buying just a single sheet for the good stuff that's going to be dimensionally stable and not be filled with voids and football patches and stuff like that. So it may just be some trial and error and the worst that could happen is you'd be out the money for one sheet, but you can then have that basis of understanding. When I paid 
30 bucks, 50 bucks for this. These are the problems I had. So now you can go back to a dealer and say, yeah, I bought this before and I had problems with this, 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 and this. Can you get me a sheet that's not going to have those issues, not going to have voids, not going to have dimensional instability? And, you know, the glue is better. It's not going to delam on me. So that just may be a matter of trying to find another supplier. A good yard will be willing to talk to you about it. The problem with plywood is most of the hobby guys I know are not buying a whole lot of sheets of plywood. We're buying one or two sheets of plywood and plywood is just not manufactured that way. So you may not have a lot of options at your local lumber yard because they've got to buy it, you know, in large quantities and that stuff just sits and sits and sits and never turns. And if you're looking for something really specific and you only want one or two sheets, now you're suddenly talking about $200, $300 a sheet for single production runs, custom-made plywood, even though it's the exact same piece you could get, you know, 100 sheets for $50, if you want that manufacturer to custom lay up a panel, only one panel, it's going to be expensive because essentially they're shutting down a line, running that one panel, shutting it off. That's just ridiculous. It's totally inefficient. And that's how plywood is made. It's all mass produced. So it's something to think about. Anyway, Greg, um, the, the answer to that is a lot more confusing, I think. And that the, that's the issue. Look for shop grade plywood if they can't find Baltic birch. In fact, even though Baltic birch is a brand name, it can be a bit of a misnomer because most of it doesn't come from the Baltic states anymore. And Kyle wrote in and he said, uh, is there any wood drying taking place in Africa or are boards just sawn from the log and then shipped? The answer to this is also a yes. Um, many of the, the African mills, because for the most part, unless you're talking about a veneer quality log, logs are not being shipped out of Africa. Um, most countries have a log export ban. This goes back to CITES, uh, not CITES, but to Lacey. It's illegal to ship a log out of a lot of these countries. So the moreover, it's really cost ineffective. You know, logs have a lot of waste in them. Logs also have a lot of water in them, which means weight, which is, yeah, not good. It's a very inefficient way to ship. So for the most part, logs are being sawn into boards in Africa. Many times they're being sawn into boards further into the interior of Africa that the boards are put on trucks and shipped to a port. The, the better suppliers are actually then doing some drying at the port um, because it, it certainly gives them a better product. So when it lands on our shores, we're happier with what we've seen. But it also, again, reduces the weight. So you can put more. It also reduces the physical size. There's actual shrinkage when you when you pull the water out of a board. So you can put more boards in a shipping container for less weight. And that's just more efficient, more cost effective way of shipping it. Moreover, you put a bunch of green lumber in a shipping container, stick it on a ship and put it across the Atlantic in the baking sun. You're going to get all kinds of nasties growing in there. Moreover, bugs and iguanas and all kinds of stuff showing up in that lumber that's going to affect the quality of it once it does get to our shores. So while there are still some companies that do sell and ship green lumber, they're the less reputable companies and oftentimes their stock is being bought by brokers sight unseen. These brokers don't run a lumber yard. They literally sell it out of a container right from the port. Very akin to the guy selling watches under his trench coat or um, my buddy Matt Vanderlis guy with the, the trunk full of tools just outside the uh, the Menards. <laughs> yeah, not exactly high quality stuff and probably somebody you want to avoid and also probably a red flag for some illegally sourced lumber. 
So I would say the lion's share of the African hardwoods that we are buying in the U.S. have been dried to some extent in Africa. Now, they've been dried to a European standard, which is higher than North American standards. North American kiln dry standards say 6 to 8% moisture content. European standards call for 12 to 18%, sometimes 15%, um, because it's, it's a lot wetter climate over abroad, and there's no reason to take it all the way down to 6 to 8 because it's just going to shoot back up to 12 to 14 you know, as it acclimates to the, the local environment. It's going to cause more movement and issues. So all of the wood we get from Africa gets air dried and then re-dried in a kiln to be brought down to the 6 to 8 standards common for North America. I don't think I've seen any green lumber in the 10 years I've been at McIlvain come in. Um, it just doesn't happen anymore. Um, most of the stuff that we get spends three to four months in the air drying yard, and then it spends you know a week in a kiln um, before we actually sell it. So I guess the easier answer is the wood drying does take place in Africa, but you're going to find examples where it doesn't, and I would say avoid those. <laughs> it's going to be bad quality lumber, and it's probably not being dried for specious reasons. In other words, ethical origin, unethical origin. And finally, I've got a question from Joe uh, about air dried versus kiln dried. And actually, this came in from three or four people in my my spreadsheet. So I can attribute this to a couple of folks, um, all with kind of a similar question. Uh, Joe says, um, my question is related to air dried lumber. My local sawmill, which saws native hard and softwoods in Connecticut, offers both kiln and air-dried lumber. They have an on-site kiln and also store both AD and KD, air-dried, kiln-dried, in indoor buildings. I'd like to try using AD, as I know it tends to work much better than kiln-dried, both with hand and power tools, but I'd like to just experiment. What should I be aware of when buying and using air-dried lumber? My two initial concerns are moisture content and insects. What would be an acceptable range of moisture for the moisture content? And should I have any concerns regarding insects and the AD lumber? It's a good question. And that's the first thing that I always bring up. Anybody who's sourcing, um, you know, sawing their own trees into logs or getting urban lumber and things like that is the insect issue. Water break. So... First things first, have a conversation with the mill and ask them these questions. What are you doing about insects? What fear should I have about these insects? Most of the insects that we're going to run into do leave very telltale signs. If the tree was already exhibiting these signs, that log, that tree was not felled for lumber. It was felled and chipped. Um, It's just the way these things happen. It may or may not be the most um, rational response, but it's that's what gets what happens. You know, the ash borer doesn't necessarily get too much in the heartwood, but the whole dang tree is chipped. So most of the time, the bugs aren't actually those logs aren't actually making to the sawmill. But the Sawyer is going to. This is his product, right? This is his. He's got an investment in this. He's trying to make money off of this. He's going to take his time to saw it into a good yield. He's going to saw it into good quality lumber. He's going to sticker it and stack it and pay very close attention to it. And he's going to have noticed if there were little piles of sawdust and little borer holes as he was sawing it. He's going to notice little little, little borer holes. Plus, he's going to find the bugs in the board as he saws it. When the lumber is still dead green, those little beasties come wriggling out of those holes, and it's very 
very apparent. So he's going to know. And more than likely, in order to protect his stock from contagion, he's going to get that log the hell out of there as soon as he can. So if it's a legitimate sawmill and not just some guy, again, selling lumber out of the, out of the trunk of his car, um, he's thought about these things. And having a conversation with him that, hey, I'm concerned about this, put my concerns at rest, ought to be able to put your concerns at rest. If that sawmill owner can't answer some of those questions and just kind of shrugs your shoulders, maybe not somebody you want to do business with in the first place because they really haven't paid attention as they were sawing those logs into boards. They haven't paid attention while the lumber was drying. They just haven't taken good care of their stock. And you have to question, what kind of quality is this anyway? So I think you can put that to rest just by having a conversation with the mill. Um, and they might actually appreciate that you're taking that kind of that kind of line, that kind of concern. Now, as far as the moisture content, again, this is going to vary. Um, an air-dried product can mean different things to different people. Um, I like air-dried material for steam bending purposes. And a lot of the Windsor makers out there like air-dried material um, because it's it's great for steam bending. But you know, a Windsor Windsor Maker's air-dried is different from a cabinet maker's air-dried. Air-dried material taken to its extreme is to the same moisture content as the environment around it. So if you've got lumber that's been in your shop for a while and it's fully acclimated to your your environs, you can take the moisture reading on that. And if you air-dried lumber long enough, it's probably going to get close to that same amount. In my shop, it's about 11 to 12%. So I could take a, a tree that's dead green, saw it into boards, dry it for however long it takes until that moisture, until it stops losing moisture, it's going to be about 11 to 12%. That's equilibrium in my shop. And many times that's how we're, we're determining this. If you don't have a moisture meter, you weigh the board and you keep weighing the board until it stops dropping weight. That means it's no longer shedding any moisture. It's in equilibrium. So good and I'm putting good in in quotes here, good air-dried lumber is lumber that's in equilibrium with its surroundings. Whatever that equilibrium is in your area, that's air-dried lumber. But truthfully, air-dried lumber is in stages, right? I mean, you start air-drying lumber, how long has it been drying? A week? It's still air-dried lumber, right? And depending on what you're using it for, that can be plenty sufficient. If you're building a workbench, like like a Rubo-style workbench, you can build that stuff out of practically green material. It's going to shrink all at the same time, but because there's no top on top of, you know, anchored on top of stretchers and things, it's just legs, the legs will contract with that top and the legs will just kind of angle inward a little bit. Perfectly fine. Not, Not a problem at all. If you're going to be breaking that down into smaller pieces, go back to the Windsor example, and you've taken that air-dried lumber and you've split it into smaller spindle pieces and then you've shaved it down to three-eighths inch thick spindles, it's dumping moisture like mad. Moreover, it, it doesn't matter. You know, there's going to be so little warpage on that, that concentric round three-eighths inch piece, that's perfectly fine. The beauty of air-dried is... Because it hasn't been prematurely baked, you haven't hardened the cell walls of the wood itself. So air-dried lumber, the reason it tends to work better is it is just more flexible. Think about a piece of bread, piece of wonder white bread, nice gummy white bread. You know, when you pull it out of the bag, it's totally soft and moist. When you put it in a toaster, you know, it gets, well, Take that white bread out of the bag and, and you bend it in half and it's going to fold and not break. You can fold it right around your tuna fish and chow down. If you toast that white bread and then try to fold it around your tuna fish, it's going to break on that fold um, or it's going to start to splinter, if you will. Does bread splinter? You get the idea. 
because it's been baked, because it's been toasted and hardened, those, those cells are no longer as flexible. This is the same thing that happens with kiln-dried lumber. At the same time, kiln-dried lumber can be more dimensionally stable. And I'm going to clarify that in just a second for those of you screening at, screaming at, the, uh, uh, at your speakers right now. When you harden those cell walls, they do not pick up and shed moisture as readily as the non-hardened cell walls of air-dried material. Another metaphor for this. Imagine a dry creek bed in Arizona somewhere. Gully washer of a storm comes by. Uh, We call it a gully washer because that ground is so dry and so hard that the water doesn't soak in. It just sluices right over the top of it and you get these flash floods because that ground is baked to the point where it just won't absorb the water. Now, if the water sits on it long enough, it will eventually absorb into the earth. But it, it doesn't sit there long enough. So an example of using lumber, if you have kiln-dried material, say at the lumber yard where I work, and a big storm blows through and it rains for six hours, the moisture content of that lumber is not going to be appreciably changed because the water didn't soak into it. Moreover, because those cell walls are hardened, they will also dump moisture faster than a soft, spongy air dried lumber. So say that moisture content of that same lumber in the storm, six hour storm goes up 1%. Usually within a couple hours after the storm is over, it's dropped that 1% again, because those hardened cell walls are shedding the moisture. It took longer to take it on and it drops it just as fast. An air dried material will suck in moisture faster due to environmental changes and it will hang on to it a little bit longer because it doesn't, it has softer, spongier walls. Makes it work easier. It makes steam bending a lot easier because those soft, spongy walls absorb that steam and make it more flexible. Doesn't mean you can't bend, steam bend, kiln-dried lumber. You just have to be a lot more careful about it. So there's there's a couple of things there that you, you need to pay attention to. Frankly, Air-dried lumber doesn't really concern me that much. To me, the ease of workability and the color of air-dried lumber, oh my God, it's just so beautiful, is well worth any potentiality of um, less dimensional stability. If you're following good building practices to observe wood movement, it really shouldn't be an issue. Are you going to see substantially more wood movement in air-dried than kiln-dried? No. The movement is a property of the species. The tangential movement and the radial movement you see is, forgive the the, the use of the word, baked in, if you will, into the species that you're using. That 6% tangential movement that you see with cherry doesn't change because it's kiln dried or because it's it's air dried. What's happening is it's taking longer for it to move 6% because of those hardened walls or taking less time in the soft air dried material to move 6%. It's still gonna move 6%. Regardless, it just may take longer. It may take a higher moisture content for the kiln-dried stuff to do that. In our modern homes with climate control, the temperature and moisture swings are not so dramatic that it really has to be that big of a concern about that differential. But as I said, the great equalizer is going to be building with movement in mind, and you're not going to have any problems. So Joe, I hope that helps. And everybody else who asked this question, please experiment with air-dried lumber. It is a revelation. It's wonderful stuff. I wish we had a lot more air-dried lumber at uh, the lumber yard where I work, which brings up the other point. Air-dried could also mean it was dried to European standards. It's 15 to 19, 12%. It still was dried in a kiln, but we still consider it air dried in North America because our kiln dried standards are much, much lower. But have those cell walls been baked? 
a little bit, but not nearly as much. That hardening really happens when you start to drop below 8% moisture content. As far as the overall moisture content can be, it's going to vary dramatically depending on how long that board has been drying. And I wouldn't worry about it too much. As long as you understand what you're going to be building and what kind of restrictions you have on the movement when you're building it. That's it for me, folks. That was a mouthful. It's quite a bit of information in this particular episode, but I want to thank everybody for sending in questions. Love it. Still waiting for some more voicemails. We've had a grand total of one voicemail on this uh, since this podcast began. So uh, feel free to submit uh, a question via the form on the website or send your queries to lumberupdate at gmail.com and record a voice memo. I'd love to hear somebody else's voice on this show. Have a great evening, everyone, and go buy some lumber.